Okay, so today we're going to continue the discussion of uh, AN 547, which is the sutta called Wealth. And last time uh, when we started with it, uh, we got through the first two of the five kinds of wealth that are named in this sutta. Um, those first two um, being the wealth of faith or confidence or trust and the wealth of virtuous behavior or ethics. Um, so we'll go on today to talk about uh, some of the other ones. And I just want to give also a little overview in that, you know, the sutta in some ways may seem kind of boring. <laughs> it's just the definitions in some sense. You know, why are we kind of going over these uh, words and kind of mulling on them and chewing on them and, you know, realizing that we have different ideas about them and all of that. This is actually um, understood to be part of the process of developing wisdom. It's, it is quite cognitive and intellectual at some level, but this is kind of like one, it's one of the doorways uh, that the Buddha talked about explicitly. He says there's three different kinds of wisdom. In another sutta, he says that the first kind is uh, what's called sutta maya panya, and that's not sutta like a sutta, S-U-T-T-A, it's sutta, S-U-T-A, uh, which means hearing. It's the wisdom that comes from hearing. And in our culture, that includes uh, reading. Uh, so taking in ideas from the outside in a, in a sort of a cognitive way. And it leads to a certain kind of wisdom when we engage with that and you know, consider what, what are these words? What does this mean? What is this referring to? What domain are we in with these kinds of discussions? So there's, a, there's actually real value in this because it sets the stage in the mind for being able to go deeper into uh, the other layers of wisdom. And it's not also, you also don't need to dismiss it like, oh, this is just sort of surface level stuff. I have found uh, through practice that it's sort of a escalator elevator that goes up and down. <laughs> so, you know, I have uh, understanding at the Sutta Maya Panya level, the hearing level. And then there's the, the next level is uh, like reflection, thinking about stuff for ourselves, um, turning it over in our mind. Um, and then the, the sort of the deepest level is to have a direct experience of what the teaching is, Bhavana Mayapanya. And it turns out that once we've had you know, some direct experience of practicing, like maybe we have an insight into some kind of a wisdom insight, which can be very powerful in practice, um, we then find that going back up, our, our understanding at the level of the words has changed. Uh, is is different over time. So we can go up and down and through and there's no particular order. So I'm just kind of trying to place this in context. If this just seems like a bunch of definitions of words, I, I would ask maybe for a little openness and just kind of see what does this start to do if we, if we connect with it. So we're on the third section now. Um, which it says, and what is the wealth of learning? The paragraph that begins with that. And this word learning, by the way, is sutta, S-U-T-A, so hearing. It's just like that first level of wisdom I just talked about. And so he's gonna go on and say, what does that mean in, this, in the context of this teaching of this list? 
So um, would somebody please read that little paragraph that starts with, what is the wealth of learning? Would someone like to do that? Okay, I saw Eddie's hand first. Uh, Katie, you can do the next one. Go ahead. And what is the wealth of learning? Here, a noble, a noble disciple has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and accumulates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the beginning, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life, such teachings as these he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. Okay, thank you. It was nicely read. In our minds, we can put other pronouns in there. Um, okay, so um, starting with this then, how does this strike you? Have you? I'm just curious because this, this part of the teachings is actually rarely emphasized in the, happens to be in the way that we uh, do the Dharma uh, in our Dharma centers. What do you think about learning much, remembering what you've learned and accumulating? You almost never see the word accumulation with a positive sense in Buddhism. Um, it's supposed to be about letting go, but here's something to accumulate. Maybe I'll pause there. It, or is it hated school and this now feels like, oh gosh, I'll, I don't know about all this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess my experience with um, years is it's a combination, for, for me what seems to work is this combination of, of experience, meditating um, uh, and learning through just my own meditation experience and combined with um, the reading. The, the the learning as you've talked as is talked about in the sutta here and it's kind yeah. of like my experience um can think of reading classical books in high school and you re read them and they didn't mean too much and then after uh 20 years or 30 years when you read them again they have a whole different meaning based on your experience so i think that going back and forth between one's own experience and what one reads is very rich. It, it, you, you, I've had the experience of going, oh, that's what that means uh, after yes. experiencing it myself. So, Exactly. For me, a lot of the images um, are powerful. You know, sometimes you can get the image at a surface level. Oh, okay, you know, I can understand why anger is said to be a red-hot iron ball. Okay, I get it. There's a sutta that says that. And then someday you may have an experience where it's like, oh, you know, this is, this feels exactly like what that image says. And it's uh, amazing um, because you realize the Buddha wasn't just giving an image. Well, maybe he was, but, you know, for something that would be meaningful for people in an ancient Indian culture, which was in a, you know, an agrarian kind of uh, economy and so forth. Um, but, and we don't really do that now, so we don't know about the ox herding, you know, and all that stuff, but, um, 
sometimes it's actually pointing to a very visceral experience that even if we're not farmers or something, we can really feel, oh, this is uh, what was being pointed to. And I think you're, yeah, you're exactly right, Bruce, is that I've had the same experience of finding a complementarity and a sort of a mutual enhancement of the study and the practice. I think that's what's being pointed to here. It's also interesting to look at this set of phrases near the end uh, where it says, such teachings the person has learned much of, retained in mind, that means memorized, <laughs> recited verbally, so spoken like we do when we, that's why I kind of why I ask you to read these, um, and mentally investigated, so that now starts getting these, the last two actually point toward the other two kinds of wisdom. So after you've done all the stuff with uh, learning, memorizing, and reciting, we get to mentally investigated. That's the second layer called Chintamayapanya, uh, where you, you investigate them still intellectually, but a little bit more deeply and relate them to your own experience. And penetrated well by view, that's the Bhavanamayapanya, where you've actually touched them through practice, touched these teachings directly in some way. Beverly, you're muted. Yeah, I just, yeah, thank you. The passage itself actually is not so much about learning, it's really very sweet, it's devotional. It, it looks like it's meant to inspire us. I mean, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Yeah. The last phrase kind of seems like, well, why would you want to kind of saturate yourself in it? Why would you want to be motivated to to learn it uh, that deeply yeah this definitely is not thank you for pointing that out I, what i hear you pointing to is that this isn't only an intellectual or cognitive engagement with the teachings there's an emotional engagement with things that are good and you know you would feel nourished by these there's an intention for that dimension to be included does that capture what you were pointing toward yeah, okay. Yes, well enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah, Jill. Um, I was doing some of this before I knew what I was doing, which is we chant every morning. And so naturally we memorize, not, it just comes uh, various chants, and the chants all come from the suttas. And so then I found myself, uh, after chanting and knowing them, really trying to investigate. Uh, understanding what they were saying or pointing to line by line. And this shifts over time, uh, what I think it's pointing to, or it, maybe it deepens. But in any case, um, it was a very natural way of going through that process, just uh, doing the chants, which started out as doing something devotional. And then it became um, maybe more of a cognitive exercise. And then again, at the end, I think it comes back to a integration of experience and, and uh, analysis. Yeah. It's not an accident that a lot of spiritual traditions include some kind of chanting or recitation. It's sort of a different channel for things to go in um, and it awakens different qualities of the heart and it connects the heart to the mind uh, in ways that we seem to need 
as humans in our psychophysical system. I have a question on yeah. that one. It says penetrate it well by view. Would that be um, connected with the Eightfold Path with the right view? Or is that like a whole different yeah. idea? Nope, it's, it's the same. Yeah, these are penetrated well when we have, when we bring right view to our study of the teachings, uh, we can connect with them. And I had one a, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was, uh, had something different, so go ahead, finish what you were going to say. Oh, I was also going to say um, that, and reciting uh, also is a cause and condition for attaining right view. There, it, it um, kind of helps the mind align itself with the Dharma. And the other thing that kind of struck me, and this is the um, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And you see that occasionally. I mean, I'm not, I don't study the suttas as much as you do by any stretch, but um, I've seen it before, and I'm just wondering if there's anything other than the kind of obvious of what it means, if there's something that else What do you consider the are. obvious part of what it means? Um, well, kind of like what we've been talking about, I guess, is um, you, you take it in to begin with at one level, and then as you work with it, you get to another level. And, and like you said, the, um, the director experience of teaching would be the end. Could see it three layers. Um, one can see it linearly in time across the path. You know, the teachings are good. The very first time you sit down, you, you can feel calmer than you did at the beginning. It's amazing. You know, when beginners come to the path, they it's also good at other stages of the path. I think that's a, a fair enough understanding. Is this um, this sense that no matter kind of where you are in engaging with the teachings, there's something good to be found there. Do other people have different views of that? And I, Prativa, I saw that you had your hand raised. That was exactly what I was, um, what came to my mind when we read that phrase, good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, that the teachings are, are appropriate for a person as they first step out of the path. They work as we are undergoing all the transformations that we hope for on the path. And they're also still good and supportive in at the end of the path when supposedly we reach nirvana or come to death, whichever comes first. Yeah, very well, well said. So they're always, they always serve in some way. Heavy. So I was perplexed by that because it implies that there are teachings that are not good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So, I mean, maybe I'm just, right? It's saying these are the ones, you know, the ones that are good in the middle, good, good in the beginning, middle, and end, you know, which proclaim the perfectly such teachings as these. And it actually made me wonder, like, wait, <laughs> why would there be teachings that are not good in the beginning, middle, and why wouldn't you just, 
I don't know. I was. was um, I don't know if it was meant so much as a comparison of like the Buddhist teachings to other teachings or something, or if some of the teachings are good and some of them aren't. Um, it might be worth mentioning that that word that's translated here as good is is a word that's often translated as good, but that um, uh, I've, my attention has been drawn to it lately because of uh, other teachers teaching on it being translated as beautiful. So the word is kalyana, actually, which is the same word as kalyana mita, uh, which we have for spiritual friends groups. So this word kalyana, um, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be evocative of something that is nourishing, um, beautiful, <laughs> life-supporting, onward-leading, these kinds of qualities. And so um, it's sort of self-consistent that such teachings would be uh, beautiful and helpful in a sustaining way. You know, it makes perfect sense. It just threw me, like, it threw me when I read it actually during the week and then when I, especially when I read it out loud, that, like, it was like, wait, is this, this is an implication that there are other ways. I don't think it's intentional, but to me, it's a little ambiguous. <laughs> Whatever. It's my job. That's okay. <laughs> kind of sit with the with the words and see how they uh, how they sit. You know, is is this automatically a comparative word? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I saw Richard and then I saw Betsy. Richard. Thank you. Um, I think that we also can put this in the context of the times in that there were other teachers around teaching other kinds of things and that the teachings here may include not just the buddha dharma but also refer to other kinds of teachings things that sound good initially but then as you work through the teaching uh, lead to mistaken conceptions you know like a belief in the permanence of the, of the self um, that can start out as a very appealing, nice sounding line of thought, but then it leads to this conclusion that is contrary to what we need to penetrate well by view and conclude that that's not a teaching that is actually good all the way to the end. It's an interesting point. Yeah, could this, um, could this be referring to the uh, completeness of the Buddha's teachings and that they will work all the way to the end. Um, I, I don't know if that's one of the implications. It could be. The Buddha was careful usually not to, not to criticize under other teachings unless he was doing so directly to a person representing them who, had, who was standing before him proclaiming some other view. Um, that's just my experience from reading the text. But he may have had, yeah, there could be something in there or that could be something that we work with as we practice, you know, are the, are the way that I'm holding the teaching, um, is it working for me over time? And then we might find we need to change our own view. It's very hard for us to engage with the teachings perfectly from the very beginning because our minds have a few kinks in them at the beginning um, in terms of how we understand things. And then we sort of slowly 
uh, learn over time. So if we had the guidance that the teachings are meant to be beautiful and supportive all the way through, that might help us realize also where we're getting a little bit off. If we're, um, if we work with something for a while and it seems to not be as effective, what, what would we need to change? So yeah, thank you for bringing that up, the kind of long-term. And then Betsy, did you have a comment? Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, a couple of them actually. Um, in regards to the good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end um, discussion there, um, what actually came up in my mind there English words used here, those teachings that are. And I'm wondering, you know, in different translations, how is that phrased? Um, and what were the original Pali words that were written mm. for that particular phrase? Because, um, you know, as she was saying, that the terminology there led to believe, led to the thought of, well, are they not all good? Um, so those teachings that are good, you know, is there different phrasings in different translations that actually say something more to the point of the teachings are good? Yeah, actually, that's what Sujato translates. He simply says, these teachings are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And I would have to look up the Pali. I, I did open the Pali version so that we could do this, but I discovered that um, not only Suj Sujato has it elided, so you can't see the Pali, um, but it turns out that, that uh, there's a footnote in the Bhikkhu Bodhi book about this paragraph and I looked up it up and it says that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that in the Pali it's elided and so he he actually filled it in in um, in this version that we're reading uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi put in a bunch of words there that are not in the Pali original because this is a stock phrase that's copied in, in a bunch of places and then I tried to look for it in another place and I ended up running out of time and not being able to find the Pali but I do know it's Kaliana um, as the word for good. Yeah, there, that's something you actually taught me years ago, is if there's an unsettling of the word usage that lands in me, is to look at the different translations. It does help, and, yeah. You know, and kind of make a discernment based on, you know, I don't know Polly. So, you know, based on much wiser people's translations and a variety of those translations. Um, it can be helpful. Yeah. There's a number of common translators of these texts. There's Bhikkhu Bodhi, there's uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, now there's Bhikkhu Sujato, and then there are a variety of other uh, ones that you can find. They've done most of them, and then there are a variety of other translators who have done some subset of the texts. Yeah, I think for that, why that came up for me when the discussion was going on was because I recognized those phrases from multiple different places of teachings that I have received. Mm -hmm. And I never questioned 
you know, or considered, is there bad <laughs> um, teaching somewhere? You know, is there a comparison, a good, a good or, you know, not so good or wholesome, not so wholesome? Um, and so one of the other areas that kind of came up for me here too is um, talking about reciting verbally. Um, and I think in the Buddhist time, that was super important because there was no written language and reciting verbally was the way that the teachings were passed on. That was the only way that they were passed on. Well, there, there was written language, but the, these teachings were not written down. Um, the written language of the time was, uh, for example, the, um, uh, were, uh, all written at that point and were, yeah. were passed down. But yes, these teachings were all done orally for a long time. So there's a lot, of, I think there's a lot of different places also where the Buddha has stressed, you know, verbally reciting the teachings uh, as a way of memorizing them. Um, and we, yeah, we have but not everybody's as devoted as Bruce and Jill enchanting every morning. And I just so appreciate that in your practice. <laughs> um, uh, mostly yeah. I chant with the monks, well, you know, when I sit with the monks or the nuns. Yeah. We don't need to necessarily learn to chant if that's not our thing. Plus chanting is also done better with more than one person. Um, but right. uh, it's, possible nonetheless for any of us to uh, memorize some of these teachings and uh, you know we don't need to memorize the whole sutta necessarily although you could but it's very very valuable to uh, memorize key phrases uh, you know and not not in kind of a hard-nosed you know I'm gonna devote myself to this and plow through it but just you know uh, read it enough times that it sticks in the mind and work with it throughout the day, put up little notes of, uh, with it around the house or something and, you know, see what it's like to kind of saturate in a certain teaching. Uh, I remember I used to take sutta study classes um, with a teacher who would ask us to memorize something from the week's readings uh, or the month's readings, however often we met. And at the beginning of class, she would say, she would just go around and each person would have to recite whatever they had chosen to, uh, to do which was nice. I actually really appreciated that. Uh, I think eventually that fell away from her teaching, but it was, um, it was a great part uh, to ask people to do that. And if you could just, you know, memorize a five word phrase, if that was all you felt comfortable with, she had no standards about what it should be, or you could memorize a whole paragraph or a whole sutta. These have such stock phrases, you know, every one of these paragraphs, by the way, is repeated in other suttas. Once they have the, and this is because it was an oral culture. And so there's, you know, there are things, if they, if they had cut and paste, they would have been so happy because it's, you know, it's very much <laughs> cut and paste, um, kind of thing. Um, so anyway, yeah, Jill. Kim, I think that's a really great idea for everybody to memorize a line. <laughs> I do. I think it's great. This is an easy sutta. You can memorize something that you like out of it. Yeah, even just a phrase. 
Okay, let's do that for uh, for next time. Okay. And very uh, nice if you don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try it. You know, just um, just something that, that seems meaningful. I mean, don't yeah, pick something that seems meaningful. Um, I will tell you that I had one experience in this class where I had memorized um, part of the uh, fire sermon, which is what we had were reading that month, and it was it's a the third discourse that the Buddha ever gave. It's a famous one about um, the path, essentially, about becoming disenchanted. And so I had memorized kind of the first whole section of it, uh, and it repeats for each of the sense organs. It's based on the six senses. And so I, I did the first one, and the teacher said, oh, that was so good. Why don't you do it for the other sense organs, too? So I, you know, oh my gosh. So I had to do the same thing five more times, substituting in and then, and then she said, well, you've gotten so far, why don't you just do the whole rest of the sutta? <laughs> so I ended up, I mean, I ended up having to recite the entire sutta and I found that um, somehow my mind could, you know, I was just like sticking in different, you know, each paragraph is the same, but it substitutes one word and then you get a little farther down and it's again the same paragraph and you substitute it one word six times. Um, and I ended up being able to recite the whole sutta. It took me maybe four or five minutes um, and it was actually much easier than I thought, and quite a beautiful experience. Okay. Um, so maybe, maybe we can go on to generosity. We could try that one. I'm, I'm very happy about this um, thing about the learning, because that was actually why I chose this text first. It's like, why am I doing sutta study every week? Um, and here's the proof, you know, this is like the Buddha encouraged this as, as a part of our practice. Of course, we can't only just sit and talk about things at an intellectual level. We need to sit and you know, do other, the other aspects of the path. Um, but this is a very integral component that is, uh, I think gets a little short shrift sometimes. So, um, Here's our chance. <laughs> um, so I think Katie had volunteered to read. Uh, would you like to read on generosity? Okay, great. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. And what is the wealth of generosity? Here a noble disciple dwells at home with a heart devoid of the stain of miserliness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devo devoted to charity, delighted in giving and sharing. This is called the wealth of generosity. Great. A heart devoid of the stain of miserliness. It's quite a beautiful phrase. That's actually a rather literal translation of what the Pali says there. Um, so again, continuing with this sutta mayapanya, kind of chew on those words and see, uh, see if things come up for, for you in exploring this territory. Leanne. I just have to comment that um, this one really applies to our uh, shelter in place. Dear, a noble disciple dwells at home. Oh, <laughs> of devoid of you know, my zero. So 
you know, staying at home is a generous thing to do these days as well as... This is a good point. Yeah. Um, donating and, and um, helping others. <laughs> Bruce. Yeah, I can say something too is that I've noticed, yes, I'm just tagging on to what was said about being at home and that it, it is a generous act. But I've also noticed that, you know, I, I'm really... Um, feeling a lot of gratitude for not being under significant economic pressure. I'm retired. I, I don't have to struggle with do I go to work or not. Um, I'm not forced to uh, be in circumstances that risk my well-being. And so, you know, Jill and I both have been um, make, doing a lot of uh, uh, donations to um, various groups that are really under duress right now. And uh, I'm noticing how good it feels. Yesterday we had a, a load, we've been working on our garden. We had a load of dirt um, topsoil delivered. And the, you know, the young Latino man drove the truck. He had a mask on and all that. And I decided ahead of time I was going to give him a tip. And, and when I did, it just felt really good. So it get, felt good in the beginning when I contemplated, good in the middle when I gave it to him. And I still feel good about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the great things about these beautiful qualities. <laughs> they're, they're good for a long time. Thank you. And then um, Beverly had her hand up and then Val after that. Yeah, I just love how it says delighting in relinquishment. It doesn't say, oh, I got to relinquish stuff. Right. Like, oh, <laughs> and if you can call this relinquishment, I have been delighting in it. But anyway, I like that phrase. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Val. I'm just curious. Oh, am I on? Yeah. yeah. I was just curious uh, why that phrase at home is in there. He's talking to the bhikkhus. It's, it's a sutta delivered to the not home, not home, you know, householders, right? And uh, astute point. So does he mean home person. in the heart? I mean, because it, it, it says, I, I, I get it back, gotta get it back here, but it says um, uh, at home, yeah, with a heart. Okay, it, so that could be redundant. I mean, you, if you think of your heart place as being home or the chitta being home. Anyway, so I was just wondering what you think about that, Kim. That's a great point um, because the first word of this sutta is bhikkhus. There are these five kinds of wealth. So he's addressing the monks. But in this one, it does say, here noble disciple dwells at home. And it's true that that phrase at home is a stock understood phrase um, that means a householder. So um, it, it's not a metaphorical phrase for the chitta or something else. Um, the word is actually the word agara, which literally means a house that you dwell in. And so um, my understanding, this is what I've been told by scholars, is that uh, when the Buddha is addressing a mixed audience of people, like let's say there's monks and lay people there, um, he will, if he uses uh, an addressing term like this first word bhikkhus, he addresses um, kind of the, sorry to say it, but the highest ranking um, people that are there. And so that would be the monks. And so he addresses to them, but it could be that they're householders in the audience. And in the case of generosity, the kind of generosity that's described here is the kind that is ascribed well to householders who are giving uh, to their family, to their friends, to the monks, you know, to, to anybody really. But 
um, the generosity that a, that a monk has is not quite the same because this is kind of material generosity that's implied, um, whereas the monks have a different kind of generosity. They have a generosity in sharing the teachings and in being you know, renunciates in their lives. So there is a slight inconsistency between those two, but I, I'm hoping to try to explain it by this sense that it was probably a mixed audience listening to the Buddha. Thank you. That's what I've heard. Thus have I heard. <laughs> but see, that's, um, that's the kind of little understandings, little things that we start noticing when we've read the suttas for a while, like Val has, uh, is that um, we can pick out, oh, wait a minute, why is there this slight difference? We start to get to other little more subtle layers. Uh, Joyce? Yeah. yeah. I, I just have a question. It's about that dwells at home. I, is it say, saying like it's noble to dwell at home? I mean, what makes being at home as opposed to somewhere else? Oh, okay. So the. I mean, the, maybe I'm not, I'm home and not in a nightclub. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think. My understanding of that phrase at home just means a person who's not ordained. So it's a householder, somebody who lives at home. And the fact that it says noble, um, that's also a standard phrase. The term noble disciple refers to, mm, I'll be careful, it has uh, different layers of meaning. But the, the, so the top level meaning is that it, uh, it's somebody who has heard the teachings of the Buddha. Um, as opposed to someone who is completely unaware of them. But more technically, it refers to somebody who has attained the first stage of awakening. Um, and we'll see that again when we get to the wisdom, uh, that he's kind of referring to someone who has some good practice. Um, but at a, at a sort of a more casual level, a noble disciple just means somebody who's acquainted with the teachings and is trying to live by them. Um, the word is Arya Savako. Thanks for asking. That was a good question. Krapsuva um, also has her hand up. Some of you are using the hand raising, raising feature, which is nice. I can see that. Or you can just wave. So did you have something, Pratiba? You're, you're muted. Sorry. Sorry, that was from before. I just I forgot to lower my hand. OK. Yeah, you have to lower the hand after it's been raised. Um, Okay, other comments on this one? Okay, so we can go on to the wisdom. Um, who would like to read that paragraph? Carol. Hi. And what is the wealth of wisdom? Here a noble disciple is wise. He possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. This is called the wealth of wisdom. Thank you. 
Yeah, so this is another standard definition of wisdom, a standard um, understanding of this term. So it's a little different maybe than our um, Western, just, I mean, wisdom is a word that we know. Uh, it's a, not a common word, but at least it's a word that um, we use fairly regularly. So, um, but we would tend to think of wisdom as something that you kind of acquire and then have and maybe you get it when you're really old and you know it's sort of you know it has a certain uh atmosphere about it and i don't know that we would say that in the in western culture we would say that wisdom discerns arising and passing away as kind of the main feature of it so um so val did you have a comment on that You're, you're muted. I really love the way it says, this is what wisdom is, discerning the rising and, and, and passing of phenomena. It, because the teachings are, sometimes the teachings, the wisdom feels so vast. There's so many teachings. And I, oh, here's one little sentence where it just kind of clarifies it in a way that just seems, it's never simple, but it seems simple. You know, it's just um, beautiful. I like yeah. the simplicity of it. I mean, when can we discern arising and passing? Right now, in this moment, <laughs> this is it. And so it's, it makes wisdom into something that happens now. It's an action, actually. And it doesn't mean that you have to know all of these books. There's four books about this size. <laughs> um, you don't have to know all of that. But if you can discern arising and passing, which in itself can go quite deep, you know, we can see that at a very daily life level and we can also see it in meditation and that's what he means by wisdom interesting so then we can contemplate that a bit this may be also sort of an invitation why why would that be wisdom you know what's so wise about seeing arising and passing jill also i immediately thought of the first discourse um where the Kundanya got it. And what did he get? The arising and passing. Right. That's right. So Jill's referring to the first discourse that the Buddha gave. And he gave it to some people he had practiced with before he went off and got awakened. And um, one of them got it. Kundanya was one of them who actually understood what the Buddha said in that moment. And the way he, that we know he understood it is that he understood that everything that arises will also pass away or everything that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to pass away and that was what, that's considered actually to be a huge attainment <laughs> to get that at a very complete level um, to really understand that because we we don't most of the time so simple but as val said and yet you know there's a lot there really a lot there. Yeah, Betsy. What really popped out for me in this one is, um, you know, Anicca. And yeah. then it made me look back at the others. Um, Anicca means inconstancy or impermanence. So it's this arising and passing away. So, you know, going back and looking at the others, um, 
for the deeper understanding of anatta and dukkha and bringing you know looking at the whole sutta in relationship to that and you know it's all there yeah so how did you find just give us we don't need a total analysis but like a um well the generosity not self you're caring for others you're giving things away yeah the virtuous behavior um is the destruction of dukkha mm -hmm. yeah so it's counteracting. Um, and the others are teaching are talking about you know the learning of you know how how do these manifest beautiful so within this sutta even though it's not said explicitly because of your understanding of the dharma you could find echoes of the other things that go with anicca classically um, so this is a beautiful example of how learning begins to support more broadly so betsy knows for example that that understanding of impermanence is part of another teaching that is impermanence, suffering, and not self. Those are three qualities that uh, experience is said to have. And so then she used that lens to look a little bit more deeply at some of the other things in this text. And you know, the more that we know the teachings, are familiar with them, we can start to make those connections. So thank you. Um, so Leanne has asked a question, are there layers of wisdom, as in the beginning, middle, and end, or is wisdom attained only at Nibbana? That's a good question. So um, wisdom is one of those qualities. Wisdom, the word is panya, um, is a quality of the path. It's a feature of the path. And everything that's on the path is something that changes over time because uh, the path is something that develops or cultivates. That's the task for the path is to develop and cultivate uh, all the qualities that lead to awakening. And one of them is wisdom. So wisdom changes over time for sure. And uh, we'll have an initial kind of wisdom like we can, um, like on the Eightfold Path, even the first two steps of the path, wise view and wise intention, are considered wisdom steps, even though we haven't, we barely even started, we haven't even really gotten to ethical conduct yet, but we have to have enough wisdom to know that we want to, to be able to see that some things work and some things don't. Some things are have good results and some things don't. So that very initial understanding of wisdom, that there's a, a difference and there's an effect in what we do, and sometimes things have helpful results and sometimes they don't, that's wisdom and you can start the path with that and then maybe eventually that doesn't have anything to do with understanding that you don't have a permanent self or you know these sort of deep teachings on emptiness but those might come you know as late deeper layers of wisdom so i think these things just keep unfolding oh gosh we're getting near the end um okay so there we go Anicca, things arise and they pass. Um, <laughs> this has been very engaging. I guess we're going to have to do the, um, the, the verse next time. Plus, I have some kind of overview questions. And in fact, I think I'll, um, I will offer those. I, I have two, two things to contemplate. One for you to contemplate, besides finding something to memorize. So one is, um, uh, what is special about these kinds of wealth? You know, why are they, 
why are these kinds of wealth grouped together and what do they kind of have in common that the Buddha would be trying to teach about the quality of wealth? Because the Buddha wasn't, you know, materially wealthy. Um, you know, what is it that he's getting across here at a top level? And then uh, my second contemplation for you is, do you think these, all these descriptions, do you think they're prescriptive or descriptive? to sort of contemplate through those different lenses, prescriptive and descriptive. I think that might be interesting for you. We'll talk about those um, next time. Speaking of next time, I will be on retreat a week from today. Um, so I can't uh, be here. So um, my suggestion would be, I guess, that we would skip it and meet the next week unless all of you want to have a peer-led discussion i guess that would be okay uh how do you guys feel two weeks or uh try something different next week or evie's saying two joyce is saying two or else they're giving the peace symbol okay <laughs> peace everybody let's end in peace okay so we'll meet in two weeks um i'll send an email about that uh, betsy i see your note about um send, getting you on the email list um, and if you have to leave, that's fine. So, okay. So we'll meet in two weeks. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.